Greetings and welcome to Stars and Stuff, the astronomy podcast brought to you by me, Richard J. Bartlett. In this episode, we'll cover the news and planets, take a look at the globular cluster Messier 3, and highlight the work of Caroline Herschel and Maria Mitchell, two pioneering female astronomers. It's late May, which can only mean one thing, astronomically speaking. Globular season is almost upon us. And by globular season, I really mean summer. The start of summer is technically still a month away, but that doesn't mean you can't get an early look at one of the best globular examples. Messier 3 can be found in the spring constellation of Canis Venatici, the hunting dogs. Unfortunately, it's not near either of the constellation's two brightest stars and can be found on the border with neighboring Burutis, the herdsmen. If you're familiar with Arcturus, that constellation's brightest star, and Cor Caroli, the brightest star in Canis Venatici, then Messier 3 should appear roughly midway between the two. As globular clusters go, at magnitude 6, this one's fairly bright. Theoretically, if you have excellent eyesight and dark skies, you might even be able to spot it with just your eyes. This obviously puts you within range of binoculars, but you won't see anything more than a tiny misty ball of grey light. What are we looking at? Well, put simply, a globular cluster is a ball of hundreds of thousands of stars. This particular globular was discovered on May 3rd, 1764, and was the first object to be discovered by Charles Messier. It's about 34,000 light years away, and is thought to be a little over 11 billion years old. Telescopically, it's pretty apparent, even at low power, and appears at the center of a triangle formed by three stars. A magnification of just 35 or 40 times is enough to show it as a misty circular patch with a bright, slightly oval core. Increase the magnification to about 100 times and you might see some resolution of the stars along its edges. The really great thing about Messier 3 is that it even stands out in light polluted skies. It might not be as well known or as easy to find as the Great Hercules Cluster, but if it's not already on your list of favorite deep sky objects, you're definitely missing out. When the New Horizons spacecraft passed by Pluto in 2015, its images revealed that this small, frigid world in the distant solar system has a hazy atmosphere. Now, new data helps explain how Pluto's haze is formed from the faint light of the Sun 3.7 billion miles away as it moves through its unusual orbit. Remote observations show that the thin haze enshrouding Pluto is made of very small particles that remain in the atmosphere for prolonged periods of time rather than immediately falling to the surface. The data clarifies that these haze particles are actively being replenished, a discovery that is revising predictions on the fate of Pluto's atmosphere as it moves into even colder areas of space on its 248 Earth year orbit around the Sun. The surface of planet Mars bears probable traces of sedimentary volcanism, a geological phenomenon that leads to the eruption of mud from underground. But how does a mixture of sediments and water behave in the open air on the red planet? Conditions there are extremely different from those on Earth. Atmospheric pressure is 150 times lower and temperatures are generally negative. An international research team recreated Martian conditions in a low pressure chamber to observe the flow of mud. These experiments showed that the mud can behave in the same way as certain lava flows on Earth and are characterized by numerous lobes. On Mars, the outer surface of the mud would freeze on contact with the air, while the inner core remains liquid. This liquid can break the frozen crust to form a new flow lobe that refreezes. 
In our 13.8 billion year old universe, most galaxies like our Milky Way form gradually, reaching their large mass relatively late. But a new discovery of a massive rotating disk galaxy, seen when the universe was only 10% of its current age, challenges the traditional models of galaxy formation. The galaxy, nicknamed the Wolf Disk after the late astronomer Arthur M. Wolf, is the most distant rotating disk galaxy ever observed. It spins at 170 miles or 272 kilometers per hour, similar to our own Milky Way. While previous studies hinted at the existence of these early rotating gas-rich disk galaxies, we now have unambiguous evidence that they occur as early as 1.5 billion years after the Big Bang. The discovery supports earlier computer simulations that had indicated the role of a quick, cold mode of galaxy formation. Observations have revealed the telltale signs of a star system being born. Around the young star AB Aurigae lies a dense disk of dust and gas in which astronomers have spotted a prominent spiral structure with a twist that marks the site where a planet may be forming. The observed feature could be the first direct evidence of a baby planet coming into existence. Lastly, staying with newborn planetary systems, new evidence shows the first ever pictures capturing the birth of a pair of planets orbiting the star PDS-70 are in fact authentic. A team of astronomers applied a new method of taking family photos of the baby planets or protoplanets and confirmed their existence. PDS-70 is the first known multiplanetary system where astronomers can witness planet formation in action. The first direct image of one of its planets, PDS-70b, was taken in 2018, followed by multiple images taken at different wavelengths of its sibling, PDS-70c, in 2019. The new technique helps to separate the protoplanets from the surrounding disk of gas and dust, allowing the existence of the planets to be confirmed. Venus is rapidly disappearing into the evening twilight and will be all but gone by the end of the month. Take a look each night and watch it gradually sink toward the sun. If you've got a telescope, be sure to take a look as you'll see the planet as a slender crescent. Binoculars may also do the trick, but you'll need to hold them very steady. Make the most of it as you don't get the chance to enjoy this sight very often. As Venus disappears, so Mercury slips into view. It's not an easy planet to spot, but fortunately Venus is close by to guide you. Mercury appears just to its left on the 21st, and then the pair will separate over the next few nights. However, Mercury will always appear to the upper left of Venus until Venus eventually vanishes into the twilight. A super slim new moon hangs below them both on the 23rd, but if you look outside on the 24th, you can use the crescent moon and Venus to find Mercury. If you live in North America and can see the moon and Venus that evening, you should also be able to see Mercury about midway between the two. Jupiter and Saturn continue to shine in the pre-dawn sky, with both planets rising a little after midnight. Jupiter is now a brilliant magnitude minus 2.5, while Saturn is a full two magnitudes fainter. Just 5 degrees separate them, so you'll be able to fit them both within the same binocular field of view. Mars rises around 2.30am, and while it's gradually improving in brightness, it's still got a way to go before its opposition in October. Telescopically, it's now 9 arc seconds in diameter. It's doubled in size since the beginning of the year, but still appears 5 times smaller than Jupiter through the eyepiece. Neptune rises shortly after Mars, potentially giving you a small window of opportunity to observe the planet before the sun comes up. As for Uranus, it rises about 90 minutes before the dawn, and is probably not far enough from the sun in the sky to make any observations worthwhile.
Lastly, the moon turns new on the 22nd and then reaches first quarter on the 30th. I guess, if I were smart, I would have written this for an episode in March, as International Women's Day was March the 8th. Unfortunately, I'm not smart, so I'm writing this now. I was actually inspired to write this by an article in this month's Sky and Telescope magazine, which talked about the women who were represented in the night sky. Let's just be honest here. Astronomy, not to mention science in general and a lot of other things in the world, has always been the province of men. There are those, mostly men, who think this is right, but to me it simply doesn't make any sense. Maybe I'm just naive, but if a person shows a natural skill in a particular area, especially one that could benefit others or advance knowledge, shouldn't you encourage it? Why would you want to suppress it? Ultimately, to answer my own question, I feel it comes down to a sense of power and control, with both of those stemming from fear. But anyway, that's a deeper discussion for another time, maybe after a few pints of Guinness. The fact of the matter is that anyone can make a difference in astronomy, even in today's age of technology. Amateur astronomers, regardless of gender, can and do make valuable contributions to the science. For example, it's not uncommon for a comet to be discovered by an amateur astronomer. One of the first women to discover a comet was Caroline Herschel. The younger sister of William Herschel, the discoverer of the planet Uranus, Caroline was born on March 16, 1750 and became interested in astronomy while in her 20s. She made her first discoveries in February 1783. One was a nebula and the other was an independent discovery of Messier 110, a satellite galaxy of the Andromeda galaxy. Her brother William wasn't sufficiently impressed. He began his own search for nebulae and asked his sister for help, as his assistant. He did, at least, build his sister a telescope that summer, but then recruited her to record his observations through his own telescope. Unfortunately, this left Caroline with little time to study the skies as she pleased. Her first comet was discovered three years later, on August 1, 1786, with another seven being discovered within the next 11 years. She was the first woman to receive a salary for her science-related work and was one of two women to become the first female honorary members of the Royal Astronomical Society. Beyond this, she made countless contributions to deep sky and stellar catalogues and contributed to the, to the discovery of over 2,400 objects over the next 20 years. She received numerous awards during her career as a creator on the moon, an asteroid named Art in her honor, a poem written about her, a painting, and even had her own Google Doodle in 2016. She was, in every respect, a pioneering figure for women everywhere and an inspiration to all astronomers for generations to come. As Caroline's life was coming to an end, another pioneering woman was rising to prominence across the Atlantic. Maria Mitchell was born in August 1818, the third of ten children. Her father William was a schoolteacher and amateur astronomer, and it was he who fostered and encouraged her interest in astronomy as a child. Maria would often assist her father in his observations and help to time a solar eclipse at the age of 12 and a half. Long after she finished school and started work as a librarian, she continued to study the night sky with her father. Besides observing nebulae and multiple stars, the father and daughter team also took measurements and timings of the stars to aid the US Coast Survey. Then, at the age of 29, on October 1st, 1847, Maria became only the third woman, following Caroline Herschel and Maria Marguerite Kirch, to discover a comet. Her discovery brought her fame, with the comet being christened as Miss Mitchell's Comet in the contemporary media. 
Despite the awards and the recognition that followed, Maria continued her astronomical work by tracking the movement of the planet Venus at the US Nautical Almanac Office. In 1865, at the age of 47, she accepted the position of Professor of Astronomy at Vassar College, becoming the first female professor at the faculty. For the next 23 years, Vassar College would enroll more students in mathematics and astronomy than Harvard. Miss Mitchell was a little unconventional. She never reported grades or absences, advocated small class sizes, and focused on giving her students her individual attention. Throughout it all, she continued to study the stars and paid particular attention to the planets, multiple stars, nebulae, and solar eclipses. She would then form her own theories based upon her observations. Neither Caroline Herschel or Maria Mitchell ever married. Maybe it proves that you don't need to either have a man in your life or to be a man to, to succeed. Or maybe it means the one true love of their life was the stars. For as Maria Mitchell herself once said, when we are chafed and fretted by small cares, a look at the stars will show us the littleness of our own interests. Here's this episode's trivia question. You can get over 700 like it from my book, The Daily Astronomical and Space Quiz Book, which is available on Amazon in both paperback and Kindle format. So here it is. How many moons of Neptune were known to exist and were named before the Voyager 2 space probe passed the planet in August 1989? Was it A, 2, B, 4, C, 6, or D, 8? As always, I'll give you the answer in a few moments. The answer to the trivia question is A. 2. Named Triton and Nereid, Triton was the largest and closest of the pair. When Voyager 2 passed the world, it revealed volcanoes ejecting frozen nitrogen onto the moon's surface. That's it for another episode. As always, if you liked it, please subscribe and tell your friends. You can find Stars and Stuff on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Apple and Google, among others or by going to tinyurl.com forward slash snspod. If you're interested in my books, you can find them at tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon-us in the United States and tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon-uk in the United Kingdom. You're also welcome to email me at astronomywriter at gmail.com with any comments or questions you might have. And don't forget to come join the Stars and Star Facebook group at tinyurl.com forward slash SNS Facebook group. Thanks for listening, and until we talk again, clear skies to you.